Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. This week we meet Ravin de Bogle, founder of London's Chicone restaurant, who has now set out to change our perceptions of vegetarian food. It's just so exciting. It's different all the time. You know, nature keeps giving you this wonderful stuff to create with. So the more produce I receive, the more inspired I am. Then we'll head to Utah to meet another culinary mastermind, Chef Sean Foster. I realized that the association with like memory and life experience was directly connected to food. And if that food was good and the service was good, that you could really honestly change people's lives. Plus we'll meet the founder of Hexclad, one of the most innovative cookware brands around. All that here on the menu on Monocle Radio. First up today, we meet one of Monocle's neighbours here in London. Ravin de Bogle's restaurant Chicone has been one of the standout places for food in Marleybone, thanks to her recipes that are inspired by her mixed heritage, having been born in Kenya to Indian parents. Ravinda has just released her third cookbook, which this time focuses on vegetarian food. Comfort and Joy contains over a hundred recipes and proves that there is more to vegetarian cooking than we often think. I spoke to Ravinda at Midori House a bit earlier. I'm so inspired by nature. I'm so inspired by produce. I'm so inspired by farmers. I think they're the best people in the world. What they do is incredible. We now work with Waltham Place, which is a biodynamic farm, which is just 50 minutes up the road from Jaconi. They grow our produce for us. And it's just so exciting. It's different all the time. You know, nature keeps giving you, it's benevolent. It keeps giving you this wonderful stuff to create with. So the more produce I receive, the more inspired I am. That's how it happens. Obviously, there's a number of recipes in this book. Just to outline and just to give our listeners an idea of what we have over here on the pages, do you want to name some favourite recipes of yours? Oh, God. Should we start with puddings? Uh, Sure. (laughs) So there's a strawberry faluda cake, which is like a milk cake, but it's soaked in faluda, which is this sort of beautiful, it's called ruafsa, and it's a rose syrup, and it's got sort of herbs and, and lovely botanicals in it. And... When you translate Ruafsa, it translates directly to soul refresher. And it's this drink that I used to have as a child. So you put a little bit of the cordial in and you top it up with milk. And it's so thirst quenching and refreshing. So I've made that. It's very nostalgic because you make a cake and then you soak it with this milkshake almost. And then you top it with whipped cream and lots of strawberries. And it's just such a pleasure to eat. There's a mango misu, which is a take on tiramisu, which is such a classic, my favorite pudding. But rather than going down the coffee route, what we've done is we've soaked the sponges in rum and a mango juice concentrate. And then we make a zabaoni, as you would with tiramisu and mascarpone, and layer it with fresh Alfonso mangoes. So it's like a Bombay summer in a bowl. It's beautiful. Curry leaf crumpets with lime pickle butter. Mm-hmm. There's a kefir kitchri. Kitchri is like one of those soothing, wonderful things that my mother would always make me when I was sick. So it's it's a perfect balance of rice and lentils, so protein and carbs. 
except I've cooked mine in kefir, which is just really good if you're feeling unwell or you're feeling a little tender. There are so many. I could go on and on. <laughs> I know that. There are so many over there indeed. And by the way, what's great about this book is that you, you managed to, to shake up people's perceptions about what vegetarian cooking can be like. Because quite often people see it in a quite, quite a boring light. I think for so long in the West, the vegetable or vegetarian option was always so dour and so dull. You know, you'd get a stuffed pepper or risotto at best. But I think that the biggest asset that we have in this country actually is how multicultural we are, how many wonderful, diverse immigrant communities there are. And with that comes innovation and and incredible ingredients and condiments and spices and and sauces and pickles and all these wonderful things that you can really use to elevate vegetables and to transform something that might seem very ordinary into something extraordinary. I mean, there's a recipe in the book and it's a turnip dish and turnips are always seen as this sort of boring plain Jane of the vegetable world. So it's just so dowdy, but they're so beautiful. And this recipe is inspired by something my great grandmother used to cook. And actually anyone who used to cook this recipe is now dead. It's archaic, you know, it's gone out of fashion, but it's so beautiful. So what you do is you you take the turnips and you cook them with a tiny bit of water because turnips have a lot of water in them anyway. You just put a little bit of turmeric and you cook them until they're very soft. I put them in a pressure cooker because I want to do it very fast. And then you crush them and then you make a tempering of spices. So you take some ghee or oil or whatever you want to use and you put in some spices. So I use fennel seeds, nigella seeds, cumin seeds, mustard seeds and fenugreek seeds, which are all very oily spices. They release their own flavor into that oil. And then you go in with ginger, chili, garlic, a bit of tomato and you cook that down pop it back into the turnips and then as the turnips are cooking with this beautiful mixture you start putting in handfuls of polenta so it's like a turnip polenta it thickens and it's just wonderful and I think that the thing to note about this book is although it's a vegetarian cookbook it's for everyone and there are things with this like the turnip polenta for example I would serve it with a pork chop Mm -hmm. so I'm not saying don't eat meat at all but there's so much to celebrate about vegetables. You mentioned also that you have come across new recipes and you've learned new things about vegetables already after this book went to print. I'm wondering, what are some of the latest things that have fascinated you, something you've learned, something that's inspired you? I mean, just recently we've put on the Jikoni menu. It's a it's a bun. It's a, a soy kima bun. It is just the most wonderful, almost like brioche dough, and then it is stuffed with a kima, which is like a mincemeat, but we make it out of soy. So it's, you know, and it's got vegetables and lots of spices. And we serve it with a, a lovely kind of curry butter on top. And people are going nuts over it. Nobody can believe that it's not meat because it's it's the way it's spiced. It's got things like black cardamom in it, which is so kind of tobacco smoky that it gives it this sort of lovely pungency. Again, dried fenugreek, another. So it's about using things like condiments and spices in clever ways. What are you trying to underline or what are you trying to exaggerate about this vegetable? Are you going to pickle it and make it like lovely and fresh and light? Are you going to slow roast it? 
It's like there's a recipe for the celeriac steaks with the kimchi butter with apple and kimchi salsa. And those are sort of really slow cooked. And celeriac such an underrated vegetable. And it looks so monstrous when you see a celeriac as well. People are often scared of it. But actually, when you cook it really nice and slowly in the oven, it just goes caramel and sweet and delicious. So to contradict that sweetness, I wanted to add something spicy to it. So we make this kimchi butter. So it's like a kimchi bernoisette, which we kind of baste it with. And then you want some freshness because the celeriac is so sort of earthy. You want a bit of freshness. So then comes the apple and pear kimchi salsa. So you have three wonderful layers of flavour in this one beautiful vegetarian dish. Ravinda Bogle there, and her book Comfort and Joy is out now. Now to the US. Chef Sean Foster started making deli sandwiches decades ago. Today, you might find him preparing sushi in Japan, cooking on a mountaintop near Zion National Park, or maybe he's preparing an exquisite dinner at his restaurant in southern Utah. Wherever he is, though, he's gaining attention in the culinary world. Monocle's James Nelson introduces us to his eclectic journey and his push to tell stories of humanity through food. Is Doug doing these ones? He is doing those ones. I believe he's doing the shrimp temporary ones. In a busy kitchen prepping for a big food event to serve a high-end client, it's easy to spot the man in charge. Chef Sean Foster exudes confidence, listens intently with a genuine ear, loves his profession, and truly believes food is everyone's language. I love all cuisines. A lot of my stuff has been based in Southeast Asia, but growing up in the Southwest, I really feel like I try and understand and study the cultures that we produce food from so that there's as much emphasis on who they are and where we are at the same time. So a lot of times I'll call myself regional New American. So I get to play with every cuisine using locally sourced ingredients. This one has... Cream cheese, it looks like avocado, cucumber. What's the orange little? That is masago. Masago. So it's a flying fish roe. Flying fish. And it has the uh, flavor of soy sauce, actually. Flavor of soy sauce. Foster right. has worked at notable restaurants and hotels around the world. He does private cooking and catering. He's considered a world-class chef. But the abundance didn't happen overnight. It took 22 years. As a 16-year-old, he was a fry cook at McDonald's for six months. He started a restaurant that failed. He made sandwiches for a deli for a while, learned how to sharpen a knife, poured through Michelin cookbooks, kept practicing, smelling, tasting, listening, and learning. I realized that the association with like memory and life experience was directly connected to food. And if that food was good and the service was good, that you could really honestly change people's lives and gain friends and influence people. So yeah, the first time I walked in the dining room after we had made that shift and someone said, hey, chef, and I had never been, of course, called that before, uh, but working hard to develop those skills, it's a title that I take with honor and pride and realize that you know, we wouldn't have those things without those that came before us. And so I always say I stand on the shoulders of giants and I just do my part. We won't be needing you, Brother Neff. I get along. All right. Get up. 
The red rock country around Kanab, Utah is where western movies pretty much stamp the iconic landscape look of cowboy movies and the American West for the entire world to see. People still visit to find out where the West was won, but it is also home for Sean Foster, his family, and the impressive Seagull Restaurant just north of the Arizona line in southern Utah. Yeah, we get to do this crazy thing called Life Together, from the high-end catering for high net worth individuals all over the country and the world, to the restaurants and our work family, because to me it's the same. My family is my work family. They are who I spend time with, and I'm just fortunate enough to have both. Very nice. What are, what are these? So this one is a big boy roll. It's got uh, tempura shrimp, a little bit of spicy ahi tuna. Foster says food supply shortages and staffing difficulties are big challenges in the culinary industry. But he sees the clock, the constant, unstoppable march of time, as the most important resource. When I realized that time was that finite resource and that, you know, the time I spend on the food, often I'll tell the guys in the kitchens, like, hey, if we're not spending the right amount of time and we create this equity balance of what we've put into the food and to the experience in the restaurant, and it matches what those individuals or guests are spending with their time and money, and the money, of course, took time to earn. If there's not an equity and a balance there, then oftentimes I feel like it's that restaurant that later on you go, oh, it closed? It was good. I don't know why we ever, never went back. Well, it's my job, and that's another you know part of my stewardship, is to understand why people come back. No, man. Thanks for coming. Foster knows big egos are not uncommon in his industry. There was a time when he would get in someone's face, but not anymore. Now he lives like the phrases he tosses out in conversation. Make decisions out of love, he says. And what's that sentence going to be on my headstone? Sean, he's amazing. He's my mentor. I feel that he, he teaches me how to, you know, really lead and understand how to elevate my cuisine. And he really supports what we do and what I want to do, what I try. He's here helping me out making sushi because this is my vision. And so he's super supportive of kind of what I want to do as a chef. That's Chef Doug Gerfidi from the Wood Ash Rye Restaurant in St. George, Utah. He's open to feedback, constructive criticism. You know, he's open to my ideas, too, as well. He's like, you know, if you want to change the menu, you can change the menu. He just wants me to work through it and succeed, right? And so he's, he's a very big person on us succeeding and having the tools to succeed. So one of them I call it a big inside out. Um, that's this one right here. That has ahi tuna. It has some sriracha. Spicy mayo, togarashi, eel sauce, a little bit of cucumber. I think the group is pretty fun. They're it's definitely interested. Crunch. It's a definitely a seasoned crowd, so they know what they're eating. And it's, uh, it's good because we can talk about it, talk about Japan, their experiences there. And uh, so, yeah, they definitely a group that appreciates what's being done. In rural Rush Valley of Tooele County, Utah, there are just a smattering of homes. But that's where we found Chef Sean playing bass with his rock band. It's, it's, it's the quarter inch to XLR that's on top of your, in your shelves, it's in the bag. After all, music was an industry he truly wanted to be a part of, and now the band, Bridge the Cap, does exactly that. Well, when I was deciding what I wanted to be uh, when I grew up, I was either going to go to culinary school 
not really realizing what that meant or what being a chef was, or I was going to go to audio engineering school. And I had played music since I was a little kid, and so I thought, well, I'll go do this, I'll make my million dollars in music, and then I'll start my restaurant. Foster did tour with a few bands and experienced some of the music world, but it was his deft touch in the kitchen that led the way to the future. There's a lot of similarities. When I transitioned away from music, actually, in the early 2000s, I wondered what it was going to be like, uh, but, you know, realizing that it feeds a lot of the same receptors, you know, you perform every night, you kind of have your band or your, you know, kitchen crew, and you're always, you know, working on the songs and writing a new song with a new dish, and you get that, you know, you get that gratification and feedback from the customers or the fans. Back in the kitchen, Foster keeps helping others achieve, while his own trajectory continues soaring to the elite culinary outposts around the world. And now, he's not only comfortable being called Chef Sean, he's parlayed the title into a magnificent dish of discovery while he teaches us about the simple power of a good meal. You know, food has been a part of our existence since we began. And that idea of a fire creating warmth and then the cooking of the food and, you know, not to get too scientific, but the Maillard principle of the caramelization of sugars and proteins, like we crave that, whether that's roasted carrots or caramelized salmon, it it's something that is innate and uh and I, a lot of times we'll say tribal, like when we have those opportunities, it's really easy to overcome diversity, language. You get a couple hungry people in a room and there's food and bread to be broke and it doesn't matter who they are, where they came from. All of a sudden you start to figure out how to get along. And cooking around the world, there's been a lot of kitchens I've been in where nobody spoke English and I didn't speak their language. But because of that commonality through the culinary landscape, we figured it out and we did just fine. Chef Sean Foster in conversation with James Nelson. You are listening to The Menu on Monocle Radio. Up next to the week's food and drink headlines, here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. Vietnam was awarded its first ever Michelin stars this week, with four restaurants being selected by the famed Dining Guide. Three restaurants in Hanoi, Gia, Tam Vi and Habanada by Koki and one in Ho Chi Minh City, Anan, were all awarded one star. The guide also published a list of 103 local restaurant recommendations, which showcases traditional Vietnamese flavours as well as international cuisine. Spain's El Bulli restaurant is set to reopen as a museum dedicated to its renowned cuisine. From the 15th of June, visitors will be able to see hundreds of photos, notebooks, trophies, as well as plastic models of some of the innovative dishes which were served at the restaurant. The eatery was repeatedly voted the world's best restaurant before it closed 12 years ago. And finally, an abandoned cabman's shelter on London's Chelsea Embankment is being transformed into a cafe. The old Victorian landmark was once a haven for hungry taxi drivers and after standing derelict for 10 years has recently been restored by the Heritage of London Trust. Cafe Pier opens its doors this weekend and will offer quality sandwiches, small plates and fresh pastries. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle Radio. 
Hybrid cookware brand Hexglad claims to have brought innovation back into the industry. The company's pans combine stainless steel with a non-stick surface, and as a result, Hexglad has been gaining popularity, and it has been said to be the world's fastest-growing cookware brand. The business was launched by Danny Weiner, and I spoke to him about what he's done with his business, what innovation in cookware looks like, and what he has got planned next. I'd moved out to Los Angeles to be in the entertainment business, and of course I wound up failing at that. But my second love was food, and my grandmother had been the first female head chef in Buffalo, New York. The first one to have an entire female brigade in the kitchen. It was unheard of at the time. So she was a big inspiration, the culinary part of the entire family. And then an opportunity um, to sell cookware appeared when I was still trying to write and produce and act. It started as a sales rep. I got asked to come into the office, be the sales manager. I eventually got promoted to the VP of sales. And I saw the market changing, and this was around 2011. I went to the owner of the company, I had my laptop open, and on the laptop was Facebook. And I said to him, I'm not sure how this is going to work, but this is the future. This is where we need to be. And he kind of condescendingly put a hand in my face, and he said, listen, kid, this Facebook thing, it's never going to last. And I walked out of his office, and I said, I got to start my own company. That was that first inkling of a thought of what would eventually become Hexclad. Now, Danny, how do you go and launch a cookware brand? You know, to be fair, I didn't know necessarily we were going to be a cookware brand. I knew the space. I was interested in the kitchen. I knew that. And essentially what I was doing when I still had this job, I have a co-founder, Cole McRae, and he and I were sneaking off. Like, I was leaving the office on a Friday night and getting the 1 a.m. flight to Hong Kong, going to these trade shows in Hong Kong or mainland China for 24 hours. Then we'd be on the flight at 6 a.m. on Monday morning back, and I'd be in my office at noon. So we did this several times looking for new products, and we didn't even have enough money at the time for both of us to go, so I had to go alone. Actually, in a strange way, I owe it to uh, Xi Jinping because he showed up at this trade show to cut the ribbon for it. And the Chinese soldiers directed us like into the basement, like the detour. And when I was walking down this basement, there were some booths set up. And I looked over and I saw a Korean barbecue plate that had these hexagons on it. And I looked at him like, that's interesting. And I walked over. And of course, it's such a remote location in this trade show that they were desperate to talk to anybody and there everything's a knockoff but I was surprised at the quality and they showed me the first sample of a frying pan and next thing you know I'm sitting down with them I'm telling them I'm in the cookware business in the U.S. and this looks very unique and we started talking about its potential because it was a completely unfinished product and it was not a product ready to sell in the western market. And what happened after that? So that was around 15 and I spent the rest of 15, 16 very much involved in the design of the pan. How deep to make the hexagons, how thick the pan should be. Uh, you know, as I learned, a two millimeter pan versus a three millimeter pan cooks differently. What's the best thing for the home chef? Everything was about durability. We wanted to create something that, yes, we want your money. We want you to buy it, but I want you to buy that piece one time. I want you to have it for a lifetime. If you give me your money again, you're going to give it to me for another piece that you need, a different size. And 
So we tweaked it for about a year and a half till we had what we thought was like a kind of perfect, durable, innovative pan. Now tell me how it works. What makes that pan, for example, special? So what was unique about it and why I got so excited was it was combining the best of both worlds. There were a lot of very high-end, what's called clad cookware. So these layers of steel and aluminum and steel, and it's incredibly durable. The cookware you will hand down to your children. The negative of it, it's very tough to clean. You have to use a lot of oil, butter, grease when you're cooking. Then the other option was Teflon, and we all know what happens. Cleans up great, then somebody scratches it, and next thing you know, it's peeling off in your food. So what they had done is this gentleman, Mr. Lee, had found a way to laser etch these hexagons, and it creates a series of peaks and valleys. So imagine the edges of the hexagons are the peak. Inside the valley lives the nonstick. So if I take a metal spatula, you can scrape and you never get down to the nonstick. So yes, it's not as nonstick as a Teflon pan. It's about 80, 85%, but cleanup is a snap. And you get the great sear of steel, yet you don't need to use much butter or oil. And that was really what we felt was the game changer. It's being said that hex clad has grown to over 150 million pounds in revenue in less than five years. Very impressive figures. If you think about how the business has grown and what you're offering at the moment, give me an idea of all that. Well, we started with a very small offering. We went straight for the frying pans because those are the workhorses in the kitchen. And then our goal was, look, we would love to own the kitchen, so to speak. So let's start building complementary pieces to our offering. People were asking for saucepans, so we went into the saucepan package. We added a deep seven-quart saute, which since it launched, we can't keep it in stock. People love this piece because you can fry chicken in it, yet it can go in the oven. You can roast a chicken in it. It's an incredibly versatile piece. But we always wanted to bring highly innovative, game-changing products to the kitchen. And if we can't do that, we wanted to bring something that is of the highest quality and just looks great, like our Japanese Damascus steel knives, which will be launching in the UK in just a few months. You can't reinvent the knife in a way. So what we did was we just made a really like badass knife. What does that mean in practice? <laughs> well, I'm a fan of the Japanese style of knife making. It's a much sharper. They tend to be 10 to 12 degrees, so sharper edge. German knives, which are very popular, tend to be more like uh, 16, 17, so a little bit wider blade. I like the thinness of the Japanese blade. I find it more flexible, and I get a finer feel when I'm using it. And then there's always Damascus knives have these great patterns on them from when they get folded, because it's all these layers of steel that they fold like a samurai sword. We decided to use a really cool, like, forest green pack of wood handle. Most companies just traditional black. We're like, screw it. Let's make it green. It looks really good. And we know some people are, it's not going to match your kitchen, but the response has been really great. Now the biggest business lessons you've learned so far, what do you think? There's kind of two. One is to embrace the failures <laughs> because I haven't been successful on everything and embracing the failure and taking my ego out of it because you, you can feel rejection when you're making something and it's not resonating with people. And you've got to have that strength to pull the ripcord on it. Be like, okay, this one didn't work and pat yourself on the back and move forward. And then coupled with that is don't be afraid 
to seek out smarter people than you and ask questions, no matter how it reflects on you, because you will get from point A to B much faster when you seek guidance from smart individuals who have been there already. And that was something I learned the hard way, but I did learn it. So those are two things that I always keep close to me. Danny Weiner there. He's the founder of the cookware brand Hexglad. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at 1500 in New York City. Also remember our spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. The program was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio engineers were Jack Jewers, Mariella Bevan and Tamsin Howard. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Cool and the Gang with Too Hot. Thanks for listening and until next week. At 17 we fell in love High school sweethearts Love was so brand new the vows of man and wife forever for life. I remember how we made our way a little patience, the time we prayed.